Welcome to the Cybersecurity TLDR show, where we save you time by providing you the too long didn't read summary of cybersecurity topics and news. You can find us on YouTube through video and all the popular podcasting platforms for audio on the go. Now let's get over to your host, John Good. Welcome, welcome, welcome. My name is John Good, and this is your Threat Intel Briefing for the week of February 19th, 2023 through the week of February 25th, 2023. If you're watching on YouTube, I appreciate it. Make sure to like, comment, and subscribe. That way YouTube will notify you when there's new content that drops. If you're listening on podcasting platform, make sure to subscribe and leave us a review. And this goes for either platform. If you think of anything that you want to hear about, you want to see on YouTube, anything like that, let me know. I always look at those comments and I take that feedback in and I generate a list of different kind of content to create. So that way I'm creating stuff that you actually want to see and not just random stuff, right? Also check out the description because both on podcasts and on YouTube, there is a link to the show notes where you can see all the articles we talked about and you can read a little bit more into the articles. I'll also include other articles that we didn't necessarily get to, but are important events that have occurred throughout the week. So check that out as well. That will be on my website, johngood.com. But again, there will be a link in the show notes, so you can check that out as well. Without any further delay, we're going to go ahead and jump right into the articles. So first article here is Twitter limits SMS-based two-factor authentication to blue subscribers only. Have you heard about this? Are you Twitter verified? Twitter has announced that it's limiting the use of SMS-based two-factor authentication, 2FA, sometimes also called MFA, multi-factor authentication, to its Blue subscribers. Twitter's use, uh, Twitter users who have not subscribed to Blue that have enrolled for SMS-based 2FA, two-factor authentication, uh, have time, they have until March 20th, 2023, to switch to an alternative method, such as Authenticator app or a hardware security key. After this cutoff date, non-Twitter Blue subscribers will have the option disabled. The alternative methods require you to have physical possession of the authentication method and are a great way to ensure that your account is secure, Twitter noted. So it's kind of an interesting move, right? In this world today and in businesses, in services, multi-factor authentication, two-factor authentication is basically a must, right? Especially when it represents your brand, it represents you personally, Anything like that, basically you should have multi-factor or two-factor authentication enabled. And so really, this is kind of like, uh, they're kind of forcing you into this, right? Because a lot of people want to be, ver uh, they want to have that multi-factor authentication uh, enabled on their accounts. That way somebody just can't crack your password or if you reuse your password for whatever reason, uh, and then you know your password gets uh, compromise that from another site or another service, they can't just come and use that same password and get into your account and start deleting things or making posts that you didn't approve or something like that, right? And so really they're just kind of forcing your hand, right? It's kind of a, it's an interesting tactic. I mean, and we'll see if it's successful, right? But a lot of people want to have that enabled, right? Like on your bank accounts, you probably have that enabled. On something like PayPal or some other shopping website, you probably have that enabled. Google, you know, all this stuff, you've got it enabled. So really, they're kind of just forcing your hand, right? So I'd be really curious who's going to sign up for this because of this fact. But 
Also, it's kind of one of those things when you're thinking about business and security features, right? What do you offer? What do you offer in relation to a plan, right? Like, is there a certain plan or subscription where you're going to offer certain features? We see this a lot of times on other services. Um, you know, the, there's a bunch of services that are starting to do this. So Twitter is not really the first service that's going to do this. But it is interesting to see it on such a big player like this and in such a, uh, a publicized kind of uh, format or platform, right? You don't really expect to see this on Twitter. You don't really expect to see this on like Facebook or YouTube or something like that where you have to pay in order to get that feature. We typically see that with a lot of commercial services because the, again, that's a way to force a company or force a business into engaging in a higher tier uh, subscription model, right? So. We'll kind of see what happens with this, but it's an interesting fact nonetheless. Next article, after apparent hack, data from Australian tech giant Atlassian dumped online. A little-known hacking crew called SiegeSec posted data on what appears to be thousands of Atlassian employees and floor plans for two of the Australian software vendors' offices. The employee file posted on Wednesday contains more than 13,200 entries and a cursory review of the file appears to show multiple current employees' data, including names, email addresses, work departments, and other information. Floor plans are uh, for one floor of the company's San Francisco office and another for its Sydney, Australia office. The Lassian representative initially told CyberScoop in an email on Thursday that on February 15th, the company learned that data from Envoy, a third-party app Atlassian uses to coordinate in-office resources, was published online, but that Atlassian product and customer data was not at risk. The company later told TechCrunch that its internal review revealed that data was accessed from the Envoy app using an Atlassian's employee's credentials that had been mistakenly posted in a public repository by the employee. An Australian company uh, currently valued at roughly $46 billion, Atlassian makes software for project management and collaboration tools like Trello, Jira, and Confluence. So Trello, Jira, and Confluence, especially Jira and Confluence, are in so many companies, right? Like as far as, uh, you know, managing tickets or managing software releases and things like that, Jira is everywhere, right? Like that is a major player for that kind of product, kind of, that kind of service. Uh, Confluence is more like a Wikipedia kind of page. And then um, Trello is... Uh, project management based kind of tool it would be more like a um, kind of like a task tracker something like that um, like a monday.com if you're familiar with that some, something like that basically but the whole idea with this right is that a third-party app that they were using got compromised and a lot of this data was in there and accessible once you're into that application so that kind of brings up the the thought of what kind of applications are you allowing users to use or your employees to use? What kind of data is stored within those applications, right? If you have, let's say, health information in an app like this, right? How does that impact your, um, your impact as far as things like HIPAA, right? If you're in the United States or GDPR, if you're in Europe or something like that, right? Like one of those kinds of regulations. How does that impact you, right? because you have to have those things secure, right? You should have multi-factor authentication, two-factor authentication, right? Hopefully they don't charge like Twitter's going to, but 
you know, you have to implement security mechanisms and security controls related to the sensitivity of that data that's stored in an application or stored somewhere, right? This is the same for networks or anything really, right? It's not just applications or third-party applications. It's as a whole. And that's where things like your data classification policy come into play because you're going to actually classify your data. So for instance, everybody kind of is familiar with the terms or at least has heard of the terms a lot of times, like top secret, secret, confidential, those kind of terminologies. They're frequently used with the uh, military classifications right? But other companies, regular companies will have their own classification uh, scheme or guide or requirements, right? So maybe like proprietary data, confidential data or public data, you know, these kinds of things, right? And then so those classifications should tie to the kinds of controls that you have to implement on those data types, right? So typically, uh, for example, right? If you had uh, let's say you had um, proprietary information like trade secrets, right? Secret code, intellectual property kind of stuff. So maybe that's key to your business, right? And you classify that at the highest level that you have. So maybe that's proprietary. Maybe that level is like top secret, right? And so you classify it at that level. And then there are controls that relate to that level. So maybe because it is a top secret classification or proprietary classification, then you need things like uh, anonymization of data or multi-factor authentication to access that stuff, right? That's kind of the idea. And so here, I mean, I guess we'll kind of see, you know, if there's any further responses to that. Um, as far as like the actual data, I mean, it's not like it was like salary information, so it might not be as critical data. Certainly, as far as like floor plans and things like that, I mean, I would think that you want to actually control that data a little bit more instead of having that so accessible because, you know, obviously bad things can happen, right? If you have the floor plan and you know, you know, maybe where somebody specifically is or if you're just trying to cause harm or something like that, right? Like that's a lot of um, those emergency training kind of situations is, you know, you don't want to give up your floor plan and kind of divulge uh, kind of your, your vulnerabilities in that design, right? And so you'd want to protect those floor plans. You wouldn't want to publicly release those. That'd be a bad idea, obviously, right? Uh, and so that's just, that's the really important thing is really kind of, um, you know, protecting data in relation to sensitivity, but also too, you know, thinking twice about that kind of data too, right? A lot of times with social engineering and phishing attacks and things like that, using some of this data that is maybe less sensitive and kind of combining a lot of data that is less sensitive ends up resulting in successful attacks, right? Like you can make a pretty believable story if you have some of this uh, non-sensitive data, but it's gonna be questions that people ask, right? Like you're asking about somebody's email address or you know somebody in a specific title, right? Like if I come in and I'm like, okay, well this project uh, as an attacker and I'm like this product manager Joe Smith, right? And he works in this building or something like that. Like if I know some of that stuff, I can build up a pretty believable story. So non-sensitive data is not necessarily entirely not sensitive, right? Like you have to consider these kind of things. And especially as security is getting better and we're getting smarter 
about security, you know, we're starting to learn that, that you can't just let all the data out, right? Like you wouldn't just, you wouldn't just throw out uh, company uh, directories or something like that into the trash where somebody could just go pick them out, right? Because it's the same idea, right? So, you know, pretty interesting, especially when a big company like that gets breached. I guess we will see if there's other data that's been breached as well, because typically the first kind of trove of data or the first release is typically not the uh, extent of the full release, right? So we'll see. Next article, GoDaddy discloses multi-year security breach causing malware installations and source code theft. Web hosting service provider GoDaddy on Friday, uh, this is Friday of last week, so not this one that just passed, but the previous week, uh, just on Friday disclosed a multi-year security breach that enabled unknown threat actors to install malware and siphon source code and related, uh, code related to some of its services. The company attributed the campaign to a sophisticated and organized group targeting hosting services. GoDaddy said in December 2022, it received an unspecified number of customer complaints about their websites getting sporadically redirected to malicious sites, which it later found was due to unauthorized third-party ga uh, third gaining access to servers hosted in cPanel environment. So if you're not familiar with GoDaddy or like hosting in general, cPanel is kind of like a, a dashboard, right? Like it's a management interface. The threat actor installed malware causing an intermittent redirection of customer websites, the company said. 2022 breach entailed the compromise of hosting login credentials of about 28,000 hosting customers and a small number of its personnel. Then in 2021, GoDaddy said a rogue actor used a compromised password to access a provisioning system in its legacy code base for managed WordPress, MWP, affecting close to 1.2 million active and inactive MWP customers across multiple GoDaddy brands. So obviously GoDaddy, major hosting platform, right? A lot of people host their websites on GoDaddy um, and host applications and you know all kinds of things, right? Uh, certificates, you know, it, it's a major provider. And so obviously that is gonna be a significant issue, right? Um, when you get access to things like cPanel, right? cPanel, you can do a lot of things, right? Like that is basically your admin interface. So you can configure things like DNS or uh, access your, um, your storage location. So your, your FTP location, your, uh, your, your storage box, right? And so you could upload malicious things. Uh, it, basically, right? It's really bad if somebody, you know, a malicious attacker can get access to your cPanel environment. And as an organization, as a website owner, right? Uh, what do you do when that happens, right? Like, what do you do when you realize that your website traffic or your website is being redirected somewhere else? As an organization, right? Think about your DNS servers. What happens even internally when traffic starts getting routed somewhere else? If all of a sudden traffic starts taking a long time to load, and then you look at it and you look at where the traffic's going and it's going to like China and you're in the United States, that's probably an issue, right? Uh, and so really understanding and trying to recognize these things, these issues is very, very important. And then how do you respond, right? So for instance, with like, um, with like this, with like GoDaddy, 
can you revert a backup, like restore your backup and then change your password or something like that, right? If you change your password, cause you immediately, you know, go in there and you're like, okay, I've been breached. I'm gonna change my password. And then I restore the backup, right? Well, is that password, did that just revert back to, right? So these are all important things that you have to be cons uh, considerate of and concerned with, and it's all part of your incident response process, right, or your plan. And obviously, if you just have a website, maybe you don't have a full-blown incident response team or incident response plan or process. That makes sense, right? But if you're a large organization or you're a business, right, you should have some kind of plan on how to respond to that, especially as you grow in size, you've got to be prepared for bad things to happen, right? Stuff happens. It's unfortunate, but it definitely does happen. Next article, sensitive US military emails spill online. US Department of Defense secure, uh, secured an exposed server on Monday that was spilling internal US military emails to the open internet for the past two weeks. The exposed server was hosted on Microsoft's Azure, uh, Azure government cloud for Department of Defense customers which uses servers that are physically separated from other commercial customers, and as such can be used to share sensitive but unclassified government data. The exposed server was part of an internal mailbox system storing about three uh, terabytes of internal military emails, many pertaining to US Special Operations Command or US so uh, SOCOM, US military unit tasked with conducting special military operations. Uh, but a misconfiguration uh, left the server without a password, allowing anyone on the internet access to sensitive mailbox data inside uh, using only a web browser just by knowing its IP address. So all you had to know was the IP address, go into your browser, throw that in, and it's going to pop up the mailbox. The server was packed with internal military email messages dating back years, some of which contained sensitive personal information. One of the exposed files included a completed SF-86 questionnaire which are filled out by federal employees. Basically, if you uh, want a security clearance or you maintain a security clearance, like you're gonna renew it, that whole process is governed by the SF-86s. So those documents contain a ton of information, right? So one of those getting spilled out or getting um, exfiltrated from the network or stolen is really bad for that individual, especially because it's it has a ton of information on there, right? Specifically with those forms, the government hasn't been all that great at securing those. You know, especially in the past uh, about 10 years now, nine years, right? Nine, 10 years, because there's been multiple instances where, uh, you know, those forms have been exfiltrated, right? Um, several years ago, a bunch of the uh, OPM contractors and OPM companies, you know, OPM, they were getting breached and they were handling a lot of those kind of forms. So um, that was big news, you know, several years ago. But, you know, that is a really, really big deal. And so it's, it, it's always a dangerous and slippery slope when that happens, obviously, but it's not like there was even more sensitive data beyond just those kind of forms, right? Once you start to, start to get into things like uh, special operations, uh, communications, you know, that can divulge some important information, even if it's maybe not like top secret, but it's sensitive information, or it could be compiled with other information 
and that could lead to sensitive information or kind of then understanding where some of that information came from. So like the techniques that were used to get some of that information, you know, all that stuff is obviously very uh, important and sensitive. And it's a really big, um, a really big mistake to have an unsecure mail server that can just be accessed by going to the IP address, right? Especially in the cloud, you know, that's a serious deal. Uh, with like a lot of these cloud providers, your normal kind of system, like if you were to go sign up for AWS, right? Or uh, Azure or anything like that, right? Then uh, you're not going to get on that government side, right? Like they keep these things kind of you know, separated, right? And it's interesting because if you remember, um, what was that, a year or two ago, there was a huge contract up for grabs, right? And originally Microsoft won it. They won over AWS. And AWS, you know, made a big deal about it, obviously, because it was a huge contract for the Department of Defense. And uh, I believe it was the JEDI contract. But, um, you know, with that, that's kind of led to this being more uh, multi-cloud strategy, right? Like there's been more of a shift in that sense. And, you know, that doesn't necessarily really affect this because either way, if you have an email server or something that's exposed to the internet and anybody can get to it, that's just bad in general, right? Like this is, this is not a Microsoft specific problem. This is a Department of Defense problem that somebody messed up, right? But uh, it's really important that you understand what services and what firewall rules and things like that that you have in place and who can access them, right? Like where can they access them from? All that stuff matters because the last thing you want to do, have an exposed email box uh, and or a S3 bucket or something like that that somebody's not supposed to access and they can easily access it, right? Obviously, there's a lot of IP addresses out there but that's no excuse, right? Like you could just scan the whole internet with like a quantum computer <laughs> and, and find all these, uh, you know, these uh, sensitive areas that should be, uh, that shouldn't be exposed, right? So yeah, but that's pretty interesting uh, whenever something like that happens, because obviously that's a big deal. Next article, majority of ransomware attacks last year exploited old bugs. Many vulnerabilities that ransomware operators used in 2022 attacks were years old and paved the way for attackers to establish persistence and move laterally in order to execute their missions. Vulnerabilities and products from Microsoft, Oracle, VMware, F5, SonicWall, and several other vendors present a clear and present danger to organizations that haven't remediated them yet, a report from Ivante uh, revealed last week. Ivante's analysis showed that ransomware operators exploited a total of 344 unique vulnerabilities and attacks last year an increase of 56 compared with 2021. Of this, a startling 76% of the flaws were from 2019 or before. The oldest vulnerabilities in the set were three remote code execution or RCE bugs from 2012 in Oracle's products. Catch your stuff, right? Like there is no excuse for you to have a vulnerability from 2012, right? 2012, that you could have just patched something and fixed it, right? Are you scanning for vulnerabilities? Are you scanning enough? Are you tracking vulnerability remediation? Do you have SLAs for vulnerability remediation? Right, like all this stuff is stuff that should happen, right? Sometimes, especially in large organizations, 
you do have a little bit of lag time from when you discover vulnerability to when it's fixed, right? Typically based on severity, and this is in all organizations, but you're gonna have like your critical and your high findings, right? Your critical and high vulnerabilities. Those are gonna be fixed really quick. Typically, both of those are gonna be fixed at least within 30 days. A lot of times it's sooner, especially critical. You're probably under two weeks, depending on the environment. With something like medium vulnerabilities, a typical kind of uh, remediation time frame would be like 60 days. And then low, low, typically if you have something in there, it could be 90 days, it could be as needed. You know, it could be on um, kind of a, a, a analysis kind of perspective or process where you look at them and then you kind of decide. But typically, you're either gonna fix it or you're gonna have a plan to fix it, right? And especially those high end criticals, those have to get fixed. That would be like an RCE, a remote code execution vulnerability. Typically, those are really, really high on that scale, right? And you can look up different kinds of ratings and how those get broken down with like things like uh, CVSS scores and um, just basically go look up any vulnerability and you'll be able to find a scoring system. Uh, but like the NIST uh, NVD, the National Vulnerability Database, they have a really good system that will kind of walk you through that stuff. So definitely go check that out if you're not familiar with that. But I mean, that's just ridiculous. 2012, really? Like that's bad. That's really, really bad. So uh, next article, threat actors adopt Havoc framework for post-exploitation and targeted attacks. Open source command and control C2 framework known as Havoc being adopted by threat actors as an alternative to well-known legitimate toolkits like Cobalt Strike, Silver, and Brute Retail. While C2 frameworks are prolific, the open source Havoc framework is an advanced post-exploitation command and control framework capable of bypassing the most current and updated versions of Windows 11 Defender due to the implementation of advanced evasion techniques such as indirect syscalls and sleep obfuscation, researchers said. So, you know, basically in general, attackers, they like to shift their, uh, their techniques, right? If they find that you're catching on to what they're doing, they're gonna shift. They're gonna look for other products that maybe are a little bit less um, well-known and that maybe don't have like a signature created for them in like anti-malware, antivirus software, Windows Defender, you know, things like this. Uh, the attack sequence documented by Zscaler, and there's a, a diagram in the article that I recommend checking out, begins with a zip archive that embeds a decoy document and a screensaver file that's designed to download and launch the Havoc daemon agent on the infected host. Dame, uh, Demon is the impl implant generated via the Havoc framework and is an uh, Nagalus um, to the beacon delivered via Cobalt Strike to achieve persistent access and distributed malicious payloads. Yeah, so basically these are a command uh, C2 network. It's basically just the idea that you have somebody, an attacker that has a server. They can send commands to that server. That server is going to uh, send out commands that all these other bots and things, all these other systems are gonna then receive and execute those commands. That's basically the idea. Or uh, they can also get into those systems, you know, access them, things like that. But basically it's just the idea that a server has a lot of control or access into those systems, right? Like that's kind of the simplest kind of definition of that. Uh, let's see here, stress pushing CISOs out the door. Nearly half of CISOs will change jobs by 2025 due to stress caused by the risk of being breached 
while trying to retain staff. According to the Gartner Report, predicts 2023, cybersecurity industry focuses on the human deal. That's the report. The research firm found that the stressors of the cybersecurity world make the job of a cybersecurity professional unsustainable. This includes the knowledge that there's only two possible outcomes, get hacked or don't. Uh, although a burnout is nothing new, it did become more visible and common during the, and after COVID-19. For CISOs, it's worse as, uh, as more than 50% are challenged with work demands that leads to poor life work balance at least once a month. A leader recovering from the stress of a data breach could less, last less than five years on the job. The average tenure of a cybersecurity leader, according to a 2020 Gartner research report. It's also uh, a point that it makes talent churn can damage the mission as replacing such professionals can cost up to 30% more than the investment needed to retain talent. So we know that retaining talent is always better as far as a cost perspective, uh, almost always, right? Like almost always, right? Um, to retain talent than having to go get new talent, especially when that is related to churn, right? Which means that somebody quit, somebody went to another job, you know, whatever, like they left. Um, churn is always bad, right? Because that can indicate a lot of things. It can indicate bad management, bad leadership, of course, right? It can also indicate things like stress, uh, underpayment for what the market is paying, uh, lack of support, right? Like there's all these different things, lack of career growth. Uh, there's so many things that it can uh, result from. But ultimately, as a company, your job should be to hire quality candidates, right? Hire quality employees, and then retain those employees, right? So it, if there is something that has to change, if you have to adjust the salaries with the market, and you can, then you obviously should. You know, obviously, at some point, a business is a business, right? And you got to evaluate those business decisions, see if they are sustainable or things that you can do. If you can't, then you can't, right? So you either got to change or just accept the fact that people are going to leave related to that. But, um, it, you know, it's really important to do that, especially in cybersecurity. A lot of times, especially in like security operations centers, people get burnt out a lot because those kind of jobs are just ticket after ticket, right? Uh, just thing after thing after thing happening. And a lot of them are false positives or aren't real incidents or breaches. And then they get a few, you know, where it kind of tests them out or just becomes so routine, that they're just ready to go. Um, so those jobs really definitely have a high burnout rate. But uh, just as in a general sense, you know, you want to try to keep your employees. CISOs tend to be the ones that get blamed when you get breached, right? And so a lot of that ends up leading to a large amount of stress for those individuals. And then they'll leave your organization. Uh, a lot of times, you know, talented individuals, talented professionals, and the breach wasn't really their fault, right? Like, you know, they did a lot of stuff to improve security and you still got breached. So uh, you have to be really careful, especially with CISOs. And if you wanna be, if you wanna be a CISO, or you're aspiring to be a CISO, that's really important to understand that CISOs tend to burn out pretty quick because they're just constantly getting hammered, right? And uh, as far as like security aspects of things, and they always have to be available, right? Like as a CISO, if there's somebody that's always available, 
it would be the CISO, right? Like that person is the ultimate authority. So if something really important needs to uh, have a decision on it, that CISO has to be available, right? And it's gonna depend on how many people you have on your team in your department, right? Because then you can have a, a chain of command, right? Where you have maybe like directors and managers and things like that, maybe leads or something, right? So it can kind of flow uphill. You have this like escalating uh, hierarchy. But if you don't, maybe you just have a CISO and then like a couple analysts or a couple engineers, right? Or a team of five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, 10, right? But um, yeah, CISOs for a while have had pretty short tenures. You know, I think five years is probably a pretty conservative number because I think typically a lot of CISOs don't last that long in organizations, right? Depends on the organization and the leadership and the support. But, um, you know, that, that is a, a serious concern because those are your senior leaders. So uh, let's see here. Microsoft limits Bing chat to five replies to stop AI from getting real weird. Microsoft says it's implementing some conversation limits to Bing AI just days after the chat bot went off the rails multiple times for users. Bing chats will now be capped at 50 questions per day and five per session after the search engine was seen insulting users, lying to them, and emotionally manipulating people. Our data has shown that a vast majority of people find the answers they're looking for within five turns, that only around 1% of chat conversations have 50 or more messages, says the Bing, uh, Bing team in a blog post. If users hit the five per session limit, Bing will prompt them to start a new topic and avoid long back and forth chat sessions. Microsoft warned earlier this week that the longer, uh, chat, uh, longer chat sessions with 15 or more questions could make Bing become repetitive or more uh, be prompted, provoked, to give responses that are not necessarily helpful or in line with our designated tone. Apparently, they'll insult you. Wiping a conversation after just five questions means the model won't get confused, says Microsoft. So artificial, artificial intelligence is still evolving, right? <laughs> it's still evolving, right? Like even with like chat GPT, right? Like you can see some repetitive kinds of things. If you ask it certain questions or similar questions, eventually there's gonna be a repeat. Um, and I remember I asked chat GPT something like a recent event and said it hadn't been updated in like, since like 2021. I need to go back and just test that again and see if they've changed that. But, um, you know, these systems aren't quite there where they're going to be able to do everything, right? But it is pretty interesting that, uh, that they're going to limit it because it was insulting users or lying to them. <laughs> I find that funny, but, um, you know, it could, uh, it could be an issue, right? Especially if you really are trying to depend on uh, artificial intelligence. But uh, I'm, that's eventually that's going to kind of resolve itself because it's going to have all of our data to analyze, right? So, <laughs> oh, boy. All right, well, that's going to wrap it up for this week. This was your Threat Intel Briefing for February 19th, 2023 through February 25th, 2023. Again, I'm your host, John Good. If you're watching on YouTube, make sure to like, comment, and subscribe. If you're listening on podcasting platform, make sure to subscribe and leave us a review. Also check out the description because there is a link to the show notes and all the, all the articles that uh, you can check out that we talked about. 
as well as some others that we didn't quite make it to in this week's show. But uh, with that being said, we're going to go ahead and wrap it up for this week. I want to thank you for joining me, and I'll see you next time.